All right. Good morning. I've been told to start, and then everybody's going to magically stop talking, get in their seats. I don't know if it works that way. I mean, we're women. This is the best part is talking to our friends. So um, my name is Kim Cosgrove. It's great to be here today. Um, So if you know Ray or me very long, you're going to find out pretty quickly that we love Seinfeld, okay? And where's Brynn? She's probably rolling her eyes. She got, yeah, she got into this family and she's like, what is up with the Seinfeld stuff? So, I mean, what better way to start my talk than with a Seinfeld quote, right? Okay, so classic scene, George and Jerry are at a table and George says, why can't there be some things just for me? Is that so selfish? And Jerry says, actually, that is the definition of selfish. <laughs> And what's really funny about that story is we watched Seinfeld for probably six years before we saw a review about how everybody on Seinfeld is just selfish. And Ray's going, really? I've never even thought of that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So, so anyway, marriage is one of these places where we get refined and uh, get a chance to work on our not being so selfish kinds of things. So another thing you, you would learn about Ray and me pretty quickly, is that we go out to dinner a lot. Okay, so we do the classic going out to dinner dance, right? Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? So we're eating Mexican food one night and uh, having, you know, the classic discussion of where's the best place to eat Mexican food, right? So we're at El Phoenix, and, you know, I'm, I'm being gracious to be there. That's, that's all I'm going to say about El Phoenix. So at some point he says, you know, I, I think El Phoenix is my favorite place. Okay, we've been married 34 years, and I'm just like, what? Are you kidding me? So, you know, fast forward now, I think it was last week. Uh, my, my week's been crazy, but I think it actually was last week. I'm thinking it's National Taco Day, right? So being the good wife, I don't like El Phoenix, okay? So being the good wife, I'm thinking, okay, we'll go to El Phoenix. I'll arrange it. I didn't ask him. I, you know, we get, we get friends, we got Will and Brent actually, and and I said, we're going to El Phoenix, and Will's like, great, so I tell Ray, and he goes, I don't want to go there, you know, I want to go to Bar Taco, which I love Bar Taco, okay, that's, that's a great place, so I don't know if it's, we were both trying to please each other, or, or what, but the fact of it is, we seek to please other people, that is something we're all learning to do, and There's one of two reasons why you try to please someone. Either you're trying to manipulate them, you want something from them, right? Or you love them. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to see what God has to say about pleasing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would show up, you would shine your light on your word that you have a purpose for to send it out today. And I pray that we would be changed. Change us on the spot today as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So three times in the New Testament, uh, it tells us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Once in the book we're studying, in, in chapter 2, verse 12. So today's passage is fleshing out what that means. So, so let's look at it. So the first thing it says, finally then. And also another translation, and now, and so... And it should trigger us to go, okay, now what did he just say? I mean, it's been a week, right? We did, so, so let's just look back. Paul gives a prayer at the end of chapter 3. And, and so it's going to address why we're going to talk about what we're doing. He says, um, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's verse 10 of chapter 3. So what is lacking? He's just commended them on their faith. Uh, So going on, verse 12 and 13, he continues his prayer and he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So they're lacking something. And he's saying that he's praying for them to abound in love. So that's what's lacking. They're, they're, they're not fully practicing love, and their hearts are not blameless in holiness. So based on everything he said, he's commended their faith. Uh, he, we should be seeing love. It should just be a neon light. You say you have faith? Well, then where's your love? Um, Faith and love go together. I've heard it said, you know, a coin. One side is faith, the other side is love. You can't have one without the other. They're both there. Starts with, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's like that ought to be neon lights to us. It's like, whoa, wait a second. He's asking us to please God. So starting without faith, it is impossible to please God. But with faith, it's possible. Okay, so what does to please mean? Just get a definition out there. It's to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. Okay, so we're putting someone else, their desires, their interests above our own. So here we are as humans, and here is our human condition. We live lives to please ourselves because we are confident we know what will make us happy. That is our human condition state. We live lives to please ourselves. When God rescues us, though, our dead spirits are now alive to God. And all of a sudden, at this point in time, at some you may not know the date, but at some point, this is called justification, God did something. He made you alive in your spirit, and now you have a desire to please God. It's in you. Uh, he did that. But we are now a conflicted self. We have an alive spirit, but we still have indwelling sin. The Bible calls it flesh. And I'm fighting that selfishness battle every day. 
All right? So, what are Christians known for? Just throw that out there. What do you think we're known for? Okay, nobody's being brave here. Yeah, okay, there, there's an honest. I, I put judgy. We're judgy, right? Okay, that's what everybody thinks of us. It's supposed to be love, right? I mean, they'll know us by our love. We'll, we'll all go, yeah, probably that's not it. That's probably not what people say, right? We love to tell the world how sinful they are and how much they need Jesus, all right? But notice this passage. He is talking to believers, brethren. Um, it says in 1 Corinthians, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So we are to be judging. There we go. But it's not others. It's us. All right? Look at ourselves. What are we doing? Okay. So we start this passage and we see this, this phrase over and over. Actually, twice. Excel still more. Okay? Uh, I forget. There's another translation. More and more. Do this more and more, I think it says. So that ought to clue us in. <laughs> Nobody's arrived, all right? Why would he say that if anybody's arrived? We need to excel still more. So on your sheet, the blank there, if you're a blank person, we are not yet holy, all right? This, this is uh, clear in the text. We are to excel still more. We do not have that practical holiness yet. Later on in this passage, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, I mean, he just starts like, whoa, you know, that one's a big one, right? I mean, if we were all listing them, that one might be at the top of, whoa, that's a big one. So that's where he starts. So, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I, I don't know if I'll ever get out of my mind Darwin's talk as he started us about the parade and the... <laughs> The, the, yeah, that. Yeah, right. I wasn't going to say it, Renee, but Darwin said it is fine. <laughs> it's not a bad word, no. But, I mean, it's like, wow, what a culture. So, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who I don't know who that is, but he just, in one of our commentaries, he describes the culture of the Thessalonians. He says, a man might have a mistress who could provide him with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. While casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of the wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. So this is their culture, and this is what they've been saved out of. I mean, crazy. But I would contend that while we look at our culture and say, whoa, it's horrible, I think actually from everything that I've read, the Roman, that era was unbelievably awful, all right? However, we're gaining ground is what I think. Um, I mean, we have an unbelievably sexualized culture. TV, movies, I mean, I'm listening to sports talk radio. Oh, I, I mean, I have to wade through the stuff to get to the sports talk, but I mean, porn is just like assumed, okay? It's like, there is no shame. This is ubiquitous. This is just what guys do. This is how you find out if you listen to Sports Talk Radio. There's no shame in it. There was a New York Times article uh, posted, and I really, I made myself read it. I did not want to read this. Uh, it's just kind of one of those things. But it was about how many images of porn there are uh, showing sexual abuse of children under three. And it was like, are you kidding me? 45 million, it's doubled in a year. 
So that's the kind of world we live in. And virtual reality porn is going to be a thing, if you can believe that. Probably bigger business than virtual reality gaming. But, so as we look at that and go, wow, our culture is crazy, you know, are we going to be different? And sadly, Christians aren't much better than non-Christians. So let me give you some statistics just to kind of help see that. 80% of evangelicals have premarital sex, okay? 80%. The divorce rate among Christians is one in three, same as unbelievers. Porn usage is about the same as unbelievers, So as I read that, I think this should be shocking. This should be shocking. Paul would be looking at Christians and and be shocked. And and sadly, I'm afraid if it's not that shocking anymore. We just kind of accept it. Um, So the passage gives us some guidance about, he said, you're going to abstain from sexual immorality. So let's see what he says. Okay, so first area of conflict. And so just so you know, your study guides... Have, talk about verse 4 is how it was translated. And she takes the uh, thing that, each, it's verse 4, each of you should know how to control his own body. All right, so as I'm studying for this, I'm reading uh, the passage. Every translation says that, how to possess your own body. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And so what's the, what's the conflict? And they say, some, some, one translation, RSV, translates it, each of you should know how to take a wife for himself. Okay, so I come to this passage as a woman, I'm thinking, I don't like that translation. I, I mean, it sounds a little condescending. I'm, why is he not talking to me? And take a wife doesn't sound too, too good. But I'm, as I read John Stott's uh, explanation of it, he goes to the Greek. I am no Greek scholar, uh, but I can look up a word in a dictionary. And so the word is katamai, and it is the word translated possess in the one translation, and acquire or take in the other. And so that word is the word that makes it where you have to decide which way you're going to go on this translation. So seven times in the New Testament, every time they use that word, it's take, all right, or acquire. And so then you got the second word is the the word that's translated body or in the actual literal translation most clearly has vessel instead of body, okay? The English is vessel. Um, so you can't acquire a body, right? Everybody has one, all right? So, so if you're going to do body, then you've got to change what that Greek word, how you're going to translate it. It's either going to be acquire or it's not. But if it's body, then it's going to have to be something else like possess or control. And so... It's not that that's a horrible conclusion. There is grounds for it. However, uh, John Stott takes the opposite thing that says he feels like that verb, that katame, is solid enough to say it needs to be acquired. And so that's the way he translates it. And just to, to, uh, to throw a little light on this, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul again this is a later writing than 1 Thessalonians. He says, listen to how similar this sounds. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Um, so when you hear that in relation to the fact of this, it starts to weight it towards, I think maybe he's saying marriage is going to help you with sexual immorality. Okay, so 
I mean, you're probably where I was. It's like, okay, this, I don't know if I'm good with this, but here's a few things that, that maybe will help us think about it. When you think of where has God given the gift of marriage, we have the whole human race, right? And we're going to divide it into two groups, married and unmarried. All right. That's the, that you're either in one or the other. God says sex is reserved for the marriage side. If you find yourself in the marriage, that's the only place. So the teaching in scripture is really very simple. It's very simple. It's not easy. (laughs) And it is not easy as you deal with culture. You know, it's like you hear the arguments now. It's like, you know, homosexuality. How could this be God's design if I don't find myself in the married category? But the statistics show that really... Half of the people in in the human race are unmarried. So there are a lot of people that have to deal with this teaching from the scriptures. Okay? It is not just the homosexual community that's having difficulty dealing with this. Everybody, and even within marriage, you're going to have lots of times where it's not going to be something that's possible. So you're going to have to show some self-restraint. Illness, uh, extended time apart... Uh, all kinds of reasons why you really do have to learn how to control yourself. So, so God has given a context for sex, and that is marriage. So, I mean, I could go on this, this, this passage. There's so much in here. It's like I had to decide like where to go with this thing. And so I hate to broad brush something like this because it's, I mean, as I'm looking out, uh, you know, just the, the, the thoughts that are going through your head about sexual immorality and marriage. And I mean, there's just a bajillion issues, right? So I'm not going to talk about it. How about that? Um, but know that I'm going to say one thing is that marriage is not enough for sex to be holy. All right. I, I mean, there is so much brokenness out there that that there is a very real possibility you can be a marriage and still be experiencing sexual immorality. I mean, as crazy as that is, because of our sin. And so Paul adds another layer to it. And it is not only marriage, it's also a style. With honor, purity and honor. With sanctification and honor. And so you see this incredible boundary of sex. And... That is God's design. And let me just throw out that God's design is good. I mean, our culture is pushing against it. And progressive, I'm going to call it progressive instead of liberal, but whatever. Arms of the church are pushing against it. But I'm going to say this design is good, even though it is narrow. It is narrow. Sex inside of marriage only. Um, But back to us. I said... We're not talking about everyone else. We're talking about us. What about us with, with this issue? Well, just this last week, I'm, I'm kind of a Twitter person. You're either Facebook, Twitter, or nothing, I think. Well, I kind of like Facebook, but Twitter's where it's out because I'm a news junkie. All right, so I keep up with things kind of with Twitter. And so there's this whole area of the uh, church, too. Have you all heard this? Kind of, does that, you've heard me, too, right? That's kind of cultural. Well, there's also church, too, which is sadly a thing. Uh, There was a conference in Dallas, even, called the Caring Well Conference, which was 
bringing together victims of abuse at the hands of the church. I mean, as sad as that is, that is a real thing. And uh, this was the denomination of the Southern Baptist was, was the context there. I'm not throwing a stone at the Southern Baptists. You could have any denomination and be, uh, sadly be able to say this. But <clears throat> there's been minimization of sin. There's been misapplied forgiveness to, power, to protect power structures and basically neglecting justice at the expense of God's children. That's really they were trying to address that problem. So there was this one woman on Twitter who had been abused by a pastor, okay? And she, people were trying to tell her that they loved her. You know, people in her church are like, we love you. And she said, this was her, her answer to that. They said, you know how much we love you. And she said, you know, I don't. Love doesn't ignore. Love doesn't stay silent. Love doesn't minimize. Love doesn't cover sin or abuse. Love doesn't lie. Love doesn't hurt the victim to protect the church. Love isn't idle. Love doesn't look the other way. Love doesn't say, at least she wasn't raped. Love doesn't say, I can't hear anything bad about that pastor because he was there for my family. Love doesn't humiliate. Love doesn't abandon the wounded. Love looks for truth. Love speaks truth. Love apologizes. Love corrects. Love restores. Love approaches. Love asks. Love listens. Love isn't just on social media or from a safe distance. Love is in the room with you. I don't want to hear about your love for me. I want to see it. I want to experience it. So at its basic level, sexual immorality is about not loving your brother. You've defrauded them. You've stolen from them. The victim, even if it's a victim or even if it's a consensual adult, there is a, an F, there, you have not loved that person. Uh, God's design shows you that you haven't loved them. And then, of course, there's all the collateral damage to sexual immorality. Parents, friends, children, the church even. So to be sexually immoral is a massive example of not loving your brother. So, I mean, if, if you heard all this, you should be going, oh my gosh, you know, what on earth? Second point that hopefully will give us some hope. God is committed to making us holy. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God has called us for holiness. God is sovereign over our sanctification. It is his will. It's what we're called for. It will happen. We're good Presbyterians. God is sovereign over salvation, and God is sovereign over sanctification. So, if you say something like that, right, you should all be going. This is the classic response, and it's recorded in the scriptures. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, how will this happen? If that's what that God is going to sanctify us, how is it going to happen? It's not happening, right? I mean, I just gave you the statistics. In the church, we're, we're seeing lack of love. So, just as people say, believing election means that we don't have to bother with evangelism, there's a wrong thought, right? God's sovereign over it. Why should we evangelize? God's going to save who he's going to save. But they will also say, if God's sovereign over sanctification, why obey? 
What, what difference does it make? It's the same answer in both questions. God has given us means, and in both cases, it's the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us that's the answer. The gospel is what begins faith, and the gospel is what begins love. So I want to just kind of back up and just talk a little bit about, oh, goodness, the time. I'm going to be known as the teacher that goes long. I'm sorry. I, I know we have child care workers. I'm going to really go fast here. Oh, gee. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the law versus the gospel. When you read this passage, it is law. Don't do this. I mean, here it is. Don't do this. The law is a mirror, but it cannot change our hearts. Your response to the law is one of three responses. Either you fight it, you run away, or you lower the bar. Okay? Which one of us is sexually pure? Have you read that and thought, well, yeah, I'm married, I'm doing okay. Thanks. No? How about the part about maybe, maybe there, but what about the honor? Have you put your spouse above yourself perfectly? The word says no. Excel still more. Which one of us loves his brother perfectly? That's the law. That's the standard. It's perfection. It's exacting. It's crushing. It's doing what it's designed to do. When you go help, that's what it's supposed to do. It makes you turn to Christ. So I want to get a little more specific. And it says that while a lot of us look at the law and say, well, I know it doesn't make me right with God, but I still might respond with, you know, I need to do better. I need to do better. Look at what God has done for me. All right. It sounds pretty good, right? But it doesn't work. Okay? It does not work. Good intentions sound noble, but they don't work. Romans 7 says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. We have a desire problem, and the law only reveals our lack of right desires. It can't change them. This is what Stott says about the law. Love this quote. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. And that is the truth that will drive us to love. So Ryan Moore gave an unbelievable sermon. And as I was listening to it, I thought, that's my talk. He's giving my talk from Joshua. So he said, what drives obedience is knowing you are loved unconditionally. Great line. All right. I'm going to put it a different way. The secret to excelling still more is to live an uncondemned life. The gospel is in this passage. And you might go, where's the gospel? It's here. Look at verse uh, 8. It says, you haven't rejected man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God gives. That's grace. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convinces you you're a sinner. He convinces you as you read that, that, yep, that's me. He convinces you Jesus had to die for that sin where you didn't love God or your brother. He convinces you once again that Jesus is beautiful, that God is pleased with the death of his son on your behalf. Wrath is removed. New life is given. The Holy Spirit speaks the gospel over your life once again, and your dry bones live. 
You are a new creation, a child of God. You should be separated forever, but you're not. You are loved. He looks at your faith in his son and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Twice in scripture, at his baptism and his transfiguration, he tells his son, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. When you are in Christ, you hear that well done from God. You hear that well done, good and faithful servant. So the big idea is the life which pleases God is a life of increasing love for the good of others. And it should look like sexual purity and brotherly love. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. More faith, more love. That is the direction of holiness. I'm going to end with the stock quote that you have on your notes. True freedom is not freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live for ourselves, but freedom from ourselves in order to live for God and others. Thank you.